so let's sit and grow It's gonna be a good show Yo, what's good? It's your boy, Low Man. Listen, I know, I know y'all who fooling with your boy. Today's a very special episode. Do you know why? Let me tell you why. Yeah, I got an amazing guest. Y'all know I always bring y'all some amazing people, but that's not all it is. Today is episode 50 of the podcast. That's right. I'm going to give you some, I'm going to clap myself up. There we go. And I'm going to tell you why. If you've been following the podcast, I started this journey, and one of the things that I was struggling with, being a producer and a creator of content, was creating content for myself. And I went through a phase where I really was doubting a lot of my own potential. I could see it in other people. I could see it in the way that people needed to have their content created. And I had someone ask me, Lo, I enjoy having conversations with you. Why are you not sharing these conversations with more people? And it's different when you have to step into the spotlight and you have to be vulnerable. And I told y'all from the jump, I wanted to be consistent this year. If I learned nothing else through 2022, I was going to hold myself accountable to constantly every week having these conversations. And here we are, episode 50, this milestone. That's no small feat, man. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. And guess what? It's beautiful how God works because I was at my cousin's festival yesterday and I met this individual and man, we connected. You ever meet somebody that feels like a cousin or like a family member, like straight out the gate? Like, man, we could have been sitting down having Cokes and, and pork chops and rice and whatever else. You just you just get those vibes with some people. And man, I'm telling you this guest today, I just felt like we had already been brothers for a while. And I love when I meet people like that. And I'm excited to bring him to the podcast today. But I'm not going to introduce him. I'm going to allow him to introduce himself. Let's go, man. What up with it? What's up? What's up, Lil? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jarrell Howard. I am CEO of Gold Standard Farms. I'm a fourth generation farmer. We, we were founded in 1941 by uh, my great grandfather, Frederick Polk. And we're here to help maximize the full potential of the hemp plant in its entirety. We'll talk about how we do that, but also to help advance and propel people and farmers of color uh, and show them other avenues of monetization and generational wealth patterns that they can have within the agricultural space. Boy, that's a lot to unpack, and I'm excited to unpack it. Now, I want everybody to make sure they can hear you, so I want you to get close. Yeah, make love to that mic, man. Gotcha. There you go. There we go. So we good. That's a lot better. Okay. All right, so let's start, because one thing about me, I am a storyteller. I am a, 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 a filmmaker, so in the right of my craft, I like to give people a little backstory. So before we get to where you are now... I did a little research. Okay. You you actually have a degree in sports and leisure management. Yes. So how do how do we start there? How did you get into that? So <clears throat> my best friend, Chris Singleton, was a highly recruited high school athlete when we were coming up. And around that time, LeBron James had just fired um, his representation at the time and hired his friends. So that was big. Yeah. I've always kind of been his voice, Chris's voice. Um, he would actually give college coaches my number. So all of these coaches would be calling me and saying, hey, you know, we want to recruit Chris. Um, so by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I pretty much identified that, hey, this is my best friend. We're going to be stuck together for the rest of our life. Let me manage you. And that was a pact that he said, cool. 
So I instantly just went into the mode of learning about the business, um, looking for mentors within the business, understanding that it wasn't many minorities at that time that were at power players. You look at Rich Paul now and, you know, others, but at that time it was few and far. Um, I was at a boarding prep school anyway, playing basketball. So, you know, just wanted to figure out where the next phase of my life was going to be. And that ultimately um, turned into a college scholarship at the University of Kentucky, where I was a, a manager for the basketball team. Okay. Right, right. And the funny story about that is I didn't want to go to Kentucky. I didn't. I wanted to go to Howard. <laughs> so, I, so I applied to all HBCUs. Yeah. I never applied to Kentucky. But I was so sought after to be in that, you know, the come on. Yeah. Um, I remember my father saying, um, hey, we're going to go to California for your graduation and then come back to Georgia. I never got to Georgia. I flew straight from California to Lexington, Kentucky, and I was there until I finished school. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing how, like, our plans don't always end up being what happens in life. Yes. My grandmother used to say, you want to make God laugh, tell me your plan. <laughs> Shout out to Nana. <laughs> yeah. That's true, man, because I, I tell people all the time, like, you know, my my initially, I've always loved film. Um, and when I was in school, you know, we were talking off camera uh, before this. You know, my cousin Arthur and I, we we went to a school where they n really didn't cultivate the gifts that you had. Right. They just kind of told you what was safe and what they thought you could do, almost like job placement. Um, but uh, they, I was told that black people could make a living at the time in film. Now, truthfully, a lot of that was correct because there was a hold on the market. But who are you to tell a, a high schooler? Right that he can't pursue his dreams based on your perspective. Um, and because of that, it ended up detouring me to do some other things. I uh, got in the music industry before, and um, before that, my dad was actually encouraging me to go into, like, economics right. <laughs> because it was a great, you know, career. But none of that was what my purpose and passion was about. And I, I love that you can explain how... Um, number one, it speaks to your character for someone to rely on you that way. Right. Um, I can see your character because even in how you carry yourself, and I think you you definitely wear your family's name well. Um, it's it's impressive, and it is. Um, I guess you would say imprinting. Now, what do you when you talk about you going to Kentucky and you you know changing plans? Um, how did that start to put you on the path you're on today? Learning about the business and understanding um, if you are working for someone that you have to abide by their guidelines. Mm -hmm. So here's something that happened when I was at Kentucky. The coach that brought me in got fired. Hmm. So at 19, I'm sitting here figuring out, okay, I'm on a scholarship to be a manager, and the person who just brought me in has been fired, and I thought that he had to control. You're saying something right there. You get it? Yeah. So now I have to figure out how do I stay. So I was always a, a, a student manager that the players could relate to, mm. right? 
And I told him, like, hey, whoever the new coach is, just when y'all have a, a meeting, because they're going to have the meeting, just remember me. Shoot me up. Okay. Coach Cal gets hired. Okay. We laugh about this now. It wasn't funny at the time, though. Um, and he says, in all my years, I just interviewed 22 students and about, I mean, 22 players, and at least 19 of them mentioned a manager? <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, I was on scholarship. And he says, I'm bringing some of my own guys. I don't have scholarship money for you. Mm. So now I'm thinking, well, I can at least go and get my HBCU experience the last two years of college, right? Yeah. Didn't work like that, right? Get a phone call from my grandmother, and she says, you're going to come to the University of Memphis. No, I'm not. <laughs> Why? Just, just come on down here. Wow. I'm down there. One of the assistant coaches that was at Kentucky got an assistant coach position at Memphis and said, hey, I know this kid. He's really great at what he does. I think that he can help our staff. And my grandmother wanted me to be at least two hours closer to the farm because she was getting older. And at the time, I didn't know that she had just got diagnosed with dementia. Wow. Wow. Right? Yeah. So to I guess to, the answer that kind of ownership was in the air. And I think learning or having that experience at UK where they fire you at 3 o'clock and tell you 5 o'clock, you got to get all your stuff. You got to be at gone by 5. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, not knowing if they're going to get your scholarship picked up. And the coach says, hey, I'm glad the players like you, but I can't pick your scholarship up. I didn't like that feeling. I wanted to be able to control my own destiny. Let's, let's take a pen right there because <laughs> I, like, I like these podcasts to be interactive. Mm-hmm. Let's, I like to unpack that. So you, you were building a name for yourself. Even with your credibility, you having the backing of people who are influential to the success of the organization. Right. Sometimes that's still not enough. Still not enough. And even in that, you trying to use that influence and barter, because a lot of times now, society will have us think that everything is instant gratification. Right. Oh, man, you know, I deserve a trophy because I showed up. I deserve, you know, to be promoted because of X, Y, and Z. You're telling me that you can have all of those boxes checked and it can still go the wrong way. It goes the wrong way. What I learned that day was it's about relationships with with people, and he wanted his people in that position. And I can't fault him for that. Yeah. At the time, at 19, I'm, I, man, what? Regardless of regardless, how it affects your life. Yeah, regardless <laughs> of how it affects your life. You can stay a manager, but you got to pay 28000 a year. Yeah. I don't have that type of money. I come from a farm family. But then someone <laughs> who you probably thought would be your least advocate goes away mm-hmm. grandma wants you there right. needs you there and it all works out to where now you are closer to home grandma gets what she needs you get what you need right and now the the farm becomes more prominent in your life right so let's talk about that for sure so you're in Me- you're at the university of memphis yeah um back in tennessee back in tennessee <laughs> You're, you're getting closer to actually graduating. Right. Um, grandma is going through her transition. What is that like for you? 
the first day I got to the house and she asked me who I was, crushed me. Wow. Now, this is somebody your entire life has been a pillar. Yeah. It crushed me. And I'm the only boy. <laughs> I'm the only boy out of her grandchildren. I still, you know. Oh, you got to, you got to, yeah, that's, that's big. Because she knows you're, she's looking past her gener, her children to the future. Mm-hmm. I love this. So grandma, and look at God's timing. She knows, hey, I may be dealing with some stuff. So mm-hmm. let me get my baby boy, grandbaby boy, right in place for what I need him to do. Right. But at the time, I'm not thinking about all of that. The only thing in my mind is Chris is now at Florida State. He's defensive player of the year. We're getting calls from everybody. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to finish school, and we got to do the sports management. <laughs> I'm not even knowing that God is putting it in, in the, the air yeah. that, no, you're going to the University of Memphis because ultimately you're going to be living excuse me, oh, you're, good. you're going to be living back in Martin. Yeah. Yeah. In Martin, Tennessee, where because it's so the, – the racial tension, as you know, I never wanted to just be there. I wanted to make sure business was handled and then – And leave. And leave. So you said Rachel's racial tension mm-hmm. and in the town your grandmother resided mm-hmm. was high. Yeah, it's always been like that. So there's always been a conflict between – I guess we're talking blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. About 65%. Caucasian. Hmm. Right. And what does attention primarily stem from? Lack of resources. Lack of resources. Right. Everybody's just trying to survive. Yeah. I've, I, I've got friends who've been working for um, Hamilton Riker, which is like a job placement, like part time. I got friends who've been working at the same a uh, lawnmower manufacturing company for 10 years on a part-time. Huh. That kind of, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know? So the lack of ends up making it more prevalent for drug use. You know what I mean? Uh, not high crime rate, but still people of color going to jail, mm-hmm. right? And it's a revolving cycle. On the road, where our farm was, if you go right up before the tracks, you used to see the 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 alcoholics, and they would just drink all day, right? And we would ride our bikes through, and it'd be like, dang, I never wanted to be like that. And then to come back, I'm 32, and now I see people that we the same, some of the same people that I rode my bikes with on that same corner, doing the same thing now, all day. Now they're the result of what you wanted to avoid as a kid, and yeah. Man, so you want to escape all this. You yeah. you were working to escape, escape all this. this. Yeah. But now it seems like fate has caused you back to, to help, this place. To help. To help. And that's why if you look at our website, um, when we were wanting to adopt a mantra, I really thought hard on it and said, you know what? I want us to be a better solution. Hmm. Then a bottle. Then, then drugs. Yes. And all of the other things. And all of the other things. Now, you're 30. Like, this is, I want people to really understand. Most people in their 20, late 20s, 30s is trying to be out enjoying life. You get served something, man, that most people 
would I just be real? Would just say I don't want no part of this. Right. I don't want to come back here, man. I love you, Nana. I want. I love you, Grandma. But yo, you can come with me. Right. But I don't. I don't want to do this. How do How do you prepare for that? Like, how do you How do you keep yourself developing, but still having this tie to the past of what you were trying to escape? So when growing up, a lot of my grandmother's siblings, uh, her brothers were very successful in business. So during the winters, you know, they would work. The summers, family was always in Martin because, you know, the crops are there. Yeah. And one of the things that my Uncle J.D., who was the first millionaire in our family, taught me, you know, he was like, listen, it's a responsibility when you move on and you start to have success. My success came in the realm of the sports. So at 21, I'm traveling. I'm living in Miami and Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and all of these different places and learning, right? Because when I got into business, it was a lockout. Yeah. So the one client that I had was like, I'm traveling. So we're, we're literally for eight months staying here and there and meeting people and just learning. Yeah. And those relationships, because athletes don't, give their numbers out. They get, hey, take my man. So it might be a realtor, a banker, financial advisor, whatever. And I'm just cultivating these relationships, cultivating I these relationships that, yeah. <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Not really knowing that they're going to be possible investors, possible buyers for really what my purpose is. I really believed that my purpose was in sports management and 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 representing athletes of color and getting them great deals. I thought that that's what I was doing. Yeah. But then when you start seeing the turnaround of these same athletes becoming broke after four years, yeah. you know, um, and none of the ones that I was with, but just the statistics going broke, it's because the lack of education. A lot of these gentlemen are first-generation millionaires, mm. right? So because our first-generation millionaire was John David Polk, yeah. <laughs> I was able as a child to ride with him and have these convos. We talked about it. He would have me in the in this Lincoln Continental and say, Hey, <laughs> you know, he had a real soft, hey, I wonder, I wonder how much they want for for, uh, for that house right there. Yeah. What do you think that piece of land go for? I'm 15. I, I, I don't know. So he's he's grooming he's you. He's grooming me. You are unaware of I'm it. I'm unaware of it. Yeah. Right? But then I started, by the time I was 19, 20, I would ride and go, oh, they got land. To the point to where when Chris was deciding on if he wanted to build a house or buy it, he came back and was like, yo, I'm about to purchase 20 acres. <laughs> he was 22 years old. you know. And now, at 10 years later, the value for that is through the roof because where he purchased it at in Georgia is the number one area where people are moving to. Yeah. But all of that, those rides came from the rides in the 90s and early 2000s with my Uncle J.D. And he's just picking out, okay, I like that. I'm going to write this number down. I'm going to make an offer. You know, he would make me walk out to the farm. And anywhere the areas was eroding, he would say, well, you know, we got to get a retaining wall. And that's how vested second generation of, of my family was because they worked the land. And they, not only, they didn't just work the land. They're sweat equity holders because they had to work someone else's land in Mississippi yeah. to get the money to have their own freedom. 
Now let's you know interactive. Yeah. So I want us to understand that nothing happens overnight. Nothing. These rides with your uncle and your family, and I'm big on this. I, I've learned this now. Sometimes the best college you can have is right next to you. The lessons that people have learned, the things that they've experienced, um, that you can actually get for free. Right. You just got to pay time. Because if you weren't willing to give that time, if you weren't willing to give that attention, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't be able to make those connections for your clients, um, for yourself. Right. Um, and because of that, now people who are connected to you are of greater value because of you being willing to submit yourself mm -hmm. to these things. And I also want to shout out the fact that um, one of the things that was very impressive to me was your the wealth of your family. Um, I like how you said the first millionaire in my family. I don't know if y'all caught that. The first millionaire in my family. Because what we don't see a lot of is people, and I say this in the most respectful way, everyday people right. who are millionaires. We think they're like a millionaire is almost like a superhero in uh -huh. our culture. Right. If it ain't Kanye, if it ain't, but it's it's some it's some black folks with some money. Yeah. I mean, where we, I'm from, <laughs> if you had twenty thousand, you were a, a millionaire. Where I'm from. <laughs> in a Nike box, you was the man. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. So yeah, you got a solid million. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's possible. <laughs> it's very possible. And you know, we we have we have some young guys in the studio today, and I, I want them to be able to hear like, yo. And this, you were a kid when your uncle was a millionaire. Mm -hmm. And you said the first. Yeah. So in conversation, you could literally be next to the opportunity that you need just because it's not in a magazine and it's not being flaunted. You right. never know what you, some answer prayers, I guess that's the best way. I'm going to use my mama saying. Some answer prayers are standing right next to you and you walk by them every day. Right. You just got to be open to these things. You have to. So now you're you're using these things that you learn you're using the farm you're more involved with the farm when did it take because you have your you have your own farm right also yes we're gonna get to that reasonable doubt campus <laughs> that's the name of that there was a lot of doubt when i said i'm leaving sports management the farm because you were you were being successful i was being successful i finally worked I'm not going to give them credit, but I finally got a job with the company that I wanted to be with. Yeah. And got furloughed right as the pandemic happened. And that, you, this was your goal. So it wasn't yeah. on them. This was something you were seeking out. Yeah. And you worked your way into where you wanted to be. Yeah. And then God said, nope. Nope. You keep trying to, you keep trying, trying it to, that way. Yeah. I got different plans. And, and I had already been doing my R&D for the CBD side because I had to present to my family. Yeah. So when that happened, I wasn't even mad. I just said, oh, you know what? Ten toes. <laughs> you know, like I have to just do this all the way in because he keeps telling me, no, ownership, ownership, ownership. That's what your great-grandfather fought hard for. And this is something that is embedded in your family. Yes. Yes. Now, what freedoms do you, let's talk about it. Uh -huh. What freedoms come with True ownership. Man, that's a really great question. I think 
the the pressure of having to meet something, right? So it's like, okay, a lot of people work and they say, man, you know, I got my bills, I've got this, I got that, I'm working 40 hours, you know, I can't get ahead. With owning land, if I want to lease it out to someone, I can. Hmm. If I want to create a development, I can. If I just want to sit outside and barbecue and invite my friends and family, I can. Because one of the things that we learned in our family, um, cash. Yeah. We want to just cash out completely. We don't want to take any loans. We've never had any loans on anything that we purchased. It's outright. Oh, seriously. It started with Fred Polk. Yeah, so 1931, he was in uh, Grenada, Greenwood, Mississippi as a sharecropper. Okay. 40 years old. Um, hold on, hold on. Yes. We got a we got a new generation that listen. Okay. Explain sharecropper because that's not a term you hear every day. Let's, okay. Well, yeah. history lesson. Yes. The most successful time for black people was between, there was a 10-year gap between Reconstruction. Okay. We started to acquire land, a lot of land. A lot of a land. A lot of land. Uh, the 1921 census, it was 1.5 million African-American farmers. Um, you also had 15 to 20 million acres of land accumulated, and we made up 15%. But back to the, that 10-year, the first 10-year gap, when we started to monetize and buy land, they hit you with something called a black code, <laughs> which essentially would say, hey, if you're father or father's father didn't X, Y, and Z, which was ownership, yeah. right? Um, you have to do what they did. In that case, sharecropping comes along, right? Where it's like, hey, you don't own the land. Any, you don't own anything, right? Slaves didn't own anything. Come here. I'll pay you a penny. So I'm paying you, but I'm paying you a penny, right? And you can stay here and I'm going to tax you and I'm going to charge you for this and charge you for that. That was just, a, that's what they did back then, right? Um, and look it up so you can get a true definition of it. But essentially it's just land lease, you're working for free, really a penny on a dollar, all right? A new uh, form of slavery. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he's sharecropping. He goes to get some food for the family to prepare. And in there is an ad, a for sales ad, for 55 acres in Martin, Tennessee. Hmm. All right. Um, he doesn't own a, a truck at the time. He borrows someone's Ford T, Ford Model T. Yeah. This is in 1931. And he drives up to Tennessee. And with a couple hundred dollars he had saved in the handshake agreement, the guy said, I'll sell it to you for $3,000. Let's pay me. Increments. In, in, in increments. So that's what he was working for. And it took him 10 years. Now, we talk about ownership. Today we live in a society where everything is now convenient. That it is. Right? Sometimes I don't like social media because I look and I say, well, wow, everybody's a millionaire. <laughs> it's so convenient now to be a millionaire, right? Yeah. Um, but it took him 10 years. And on top of that 10 years, his children had to work. Yeah. So sacrifices within that. My grandmother didn't go to school until she was nine years old. Because she had to work the field. She had to learn how to sew. She had to wait a minute. You said she didn't go to school till so she nine. was nine. What was she doing? She she was learning how to sew, 
she was learning how to cook and she was working the field, picking cotton, doing everything that were sharecroppers. She was a child of a sharecropper. Before nine. Mm-hmm. So she could read, she could write, but as far as a formal education, she didn't get that until she was nine. So she had no real childhood. No, none of them did. You know, from the women to the the men, if you shook all their hands, it was, you know, brick. Wow. Right? Because they worked, 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 worked. And it was for a, a, a goal, ownership. Oh, okay, daddy is, that's what they call him. Daddy got land. It's in Tennessee. You know, they tell these stories, they still smile about it, <laughs> right? When they got there, they got there in the winter. They was used to the Mississippi summers and yeah. everything. That's the heat, the climate. So when they got there, they was like, oh, we don't like this. It's too cold. So my great-grandfather said, well, if y'all don't like it, then give me until this harvest. And if, if you don't like it, we'll go back to Mississippi. Right? Yeah. And my great-grandmother said to them, no, I don't care if they like it or not. I'm not going back to work for somebody else. This is your great-grandmother. This is my great-grandmother. I'm not going back. They'll, they'll learn to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And by the spring, they said, oh, you know, the, everything was beautiful. And, and people kept coming up and saying, oh, you know, hey, y'all own this? <laughs> so that's when they started seeing that, oh, this isn't, they don't own anything in this community. We were the first. Wow. He had a general store on that farm, right? Yeah. The only thing that we did not produce that we would have to buy is like flour. But everything else was, was self-sustainable. Hmm. What year was this? This was 1941. Wow. 1941. It took him all through the Depression to save 3000 so he can buy it. But the rule that he always said was pay cash outright. I don't, I don't like owing the person anything. Because as a sharecropper, you would, he would have a beautiful harvest. But then when he gets his, hold on, I owe you for this, 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 this. So he had always said, no, I'm not, once I get my own, I'm not owing anybody anything. Yeah. The same thing happened with his sons. Once they migrated to Chicago, my uncle JD, how he became a millionaire was he worked at a print shop for an Italian entrepreneur. Mm. And they used to print obituaries and take them. They had contracts with the funeral homes, you know, and, uh, I think it was around the mafia wars and all of that. So they're making money. So what he did was he told his younger brother, hey, why don't you come up here, get a job. Let's try to find a building. I can get the equipment. We do our own print shop. <laughs> so then Uncle Sal goes up there. Yeah. And then Fred goes up there. Junior goes up there. So now my great-grandfather said, hold on. All y'all, all my labor can't go. Yeah. So... James is staying until he graduates, and y'all got to come back in the summers. We got this thing. Everybody in the family comes back in the summers. You got to work. So y'all got to come back in the summers and work. No, no, we ain't even debating about it. There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> right? So the Pope boys get up there. They started to put their money together. They buy a building on West Division Street. I just learned about the, the history of Division Street here in Biloxi. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, they bought a, a building 
And in the building, they had an ice cream parlor, hair salon, and they went and got baby brother James. And they said, look, now James is the second million. So <laughs> yeah. they said, look, you're going to take over the print shop business. You're going to pay us rent. <laughs> Now you a tenant. The older brothers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The baby brother. So taught him everything about printing. He opened up JP's print shop that was on the south side, and he took the same blueprint. He went to all of the funeral homes in the hood. Yeah. And got contracts. And as unfortunately, as people started taking our own people away, he was able to monetize mm. but always ask the question when when the homeboy came in there to give them a stack of money for an obituary when y'all gonna stop doing this because even he retired at 50 because he said I can't keep making obituaries for, for us the, come on man he says I don't mind the 90 year old celebration of living 75 85 but these 19s and 20s and all of this it's something I don't even want to take the dollar on it. It got to the point where he was just like making them just here. Yeah. That'll that'll do something to you. Right. You know? Yeah. So just their acumen as men, I had great role models when they would come down and you could see entrepreneur just exuding out of out of the family, even the women in our family. You know yeah. what I mean? So it, we've always just had a knack for saying, okay, we want to have ownership because that was our way of um, I guess wearing the badge of, of, of Fred and Eloise Polk and saying, hey, we're from this family yeah. where ownership has meant the world to us since 1941 and we stand on it. And my goal now as CEO is to ensure that my family can help provide those opportunities to other families in need so we can see another 80 years of excellence. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're still carrying the torch of your grandfather. Fred Polk, right? Great-grandfather Fred. Great-grandfather yeah. Fred Polk. And not even just him, your uncles and your family members that have come before you. Right. Now, fast forward to today, um, Gold Standard. Gold Standard. How did you come up with Gold Standard? Um, and tell, tell the listeners what, what it is. So Gold Standard Farms is a minority-owned um, CBD hemp farm um, by my friends and family. You know, we've only did this with friends and family, right? Um, what we do is we maximize the full potential of the hemp plant. Um, a lot of people don't understand that there's over 25,000 use cases for the hemp plant. Uh, before hemp was outlawed in the 40s, a majority of farmers in the South had to grow at least 30% of hemp or they were fined because they were using it for industrial uses. Um, the reason why I got into that space, in 2018, I, I was able to, to see what we made as, as farmers. <laughs> the average African-American farmer on a 2017 statistic made less than 50000 per harvest, where our counterparts make $293,600. Wait a minute. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's a significant gap. Yes. Why? I mean, I, I'm trying to figure that out, but I figured out how, I figured out the solution to that. How to close the gap. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Hemp farming. Um, 
for industrial use. for industrial uses. Right now is a great time to get into the space. The reason why is because carbon and greenhouse emissions it's tearing us up, and we know as farmers directly. We know. Right, because we're dealing with the soil, we're dealing with the earth. We understand that this abnormal rain patterns can hurt your crop. This extreme heat is catastrophic to it. Yeah. So we know you're right? dealing with the direct result of, of it. Of it, yeah. And understanding that hemp sequesters eight times the amount of carbon dioxide than trees do. Hmm. It takes us 120 days for hemp to grow fully. We can have patterns where we can grow hemp twice in the summers and sequester large amounts of CO2 by learning how to trap it, to get rid of it, right? You can't do that with anything else. You no, can't nothing else on the front. Nothing else. Wow. Hemp can heal you, clothe you, house you, right? Mm. And it thrives off of CO2. The very thing we the need. The very thing, right? Soak it up. It soaks it up. <laughs> All that pollution goes into the roots of the hemp. It thrives, right? Paper. One acre of hemp can produce as much paper as four acres of trees. Yes. Why are we cutting all the timber down there? Soybeans, right? Was going for 500 an acre. Yeah. Hemp in 2018, 10 to 15,000 per acre. That's generational wealth at risk right there. Mm. You get what I'm saying? A lot of times we're not, we don't get the opportunities to monetize in the space. So when you say about the gap, it's just like, yeah, this is what you get. You know, there's farmers who have lost their, their land. Um, there's a gentleman in Louisiana. I don't know if, if you're familiar with the 1619 Project, but they spoke to him, and one of the things that they did, and when I say they, it's, it's predatory lenders. It's um, those that work for um, the USDA and understand that these farmers who have to have their loans in on time and we don't get that as black farmers, and it hurts our crop, and then we have to put up property that's been in our family to try to cover the difference, and then you lose it, right? That's who I'm talking to. You yeah. all are the they, yeah. right? So when a person has had something, and he's had their farm was older than ours, he got his loan in September. You harvest in October. There's nothing that I can do in that short amount of time. And now my farm is on the line. So predatory lenders taking bad business practices has hurt African-Americans in the farm industry. Here's another thing that we have to work on. The average African-American farmer is 68 years old with a 40-year work expectancy in, this, in space. So if they started at what, 28? Yeah. So what we have to do is we have to educate, incubate, and accelerate younger generations to understand why agriculture is so important for us. As a people. As a people, because right now it's 45,000 black farmers and we're on the verge of extinction. Yeah. And we still haven't got the $5 billion debt relief um, that was supposed to be allocated us on January 1st of 2021. Yeah. 
And then let's speak on that being the fact that seven farmers, seven Caucasian farmers can take you to court, to the Supreme Court, and they have enough money to fight a $5 billion allocation, which is really $1 billion. But if you take the $4 billion that they're going to give you, that's going to debt relief. So they're already taking their money back. They have another billion dollars for outreach, possible investments. Yeah. So when I did the math on that, the average farmer would get $25,000 when that check is dispersed. True reparations for black farmers is anywhere between three hundred to three hundred and fifty billion dollars. Yeah. They want to allocate five billion to us, but it's held up now in federal court. We don't have the money to fight it. Black farmers are constantly losing their farms right now while they're still waiting on aid. Because right? if we can wait you out, then we can buy you out. Exactly. So the main thing of what we're doing in Gold Standard, I started off with the cultivation, but then I felt like it was a sense of I needed to be doing more on the educational component to help them actually see success. It's one thing to say, hey, do this. That's why I say educate, incubate, and then accelerate. I want to educate you on all of the things, um, the proper, we were talking about this off camera, business, yeah, branding. Right. All of these things that we are not understanding or we might not know about because it's, those resources are withheld from us. That's the first phase. Then the incubation phase is saying, hey, we identify your target market, the demographic and the problem that you're going to solve. And we're going to help you with that. But the acceleration has to come within funds and building a, a black economic ecosystem where we can support and say, okay, this is a great idea, young brother. I want to put X, Y, and Z behind you, and I want to have these resources behind you so you can get to where you want to go. I don't want to ever be an anchor. Hmm. I'm not here to hold people down. I'm here to be a vessel to get them to where they want to go and bring them back safely so they can do the same thing. So let's talk about that because I know in my family we still have farmland. Well, we have land. Right. It's no longer being farmed, a lot of it. Someone like me who we have the opportunity to maybe start a hemp mm -hmm. crop, right? Right. How, how do we go about getting that information? How can, like, I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't know how to inform my family. Mm -hmm. um, like, where do we begin? Well, I did two things. The first thing that I did, I did research, right? Google is your friend. Okay. So I started to, to just understand what the industry was going to look like over the next five years or at that time, the next five years. Um, and then I had to, when I spoke to my family about it, I had to have a mentor. I had to have a mentor. And that for me was in the form of Al Harrington. It took me 18 months to get him uh, on the phone. <laughs> but, you know, now we talk every day and he's been a great mentor in helping me understand the cannabis industry and also how to uplift and educate our people within this space. Right. So I always tell people the things about the thing about mentors, they're going to know if you're doing the work or not. And then they're going to open up and say, hey, okay, these are the ways that I can help you. So throughout that 18-month process, he was able to see that I was doing the work. And then once he saw it, it was like, okay, these are, you're serious. These are the resources. Yeah. So I want you to learn, right? And then from there, 
you go to someone who has the knowledge and say, okay, these are the things that I've already worked on. These are the things that I've researched. That right there is an opening. Like for me, that's how I work with people. Yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone no, but I will say, hey, I'm going to send you an email. I want you to knock this list out. And then from there, if I see that you're, you know, you're doing it, you know, let's, let's go. But this is an expensive industry. Okay. Cannabis cultivation is expensive. And I've seen people lose everything behind it. You know? So I always say the best thing is the educational component. Start small and then work your way from there. Because it's only 2% of us in that industry. Mm. So you see, you see the similarities from farming yeah. and cannabis. It's only 2% of us. 85% of us go to jail for it. <laughs> but only 2% of us have license and own it. Now, see, that, that's what was my next question. Why are 85% of us going to jail for it? I mean, it's... Are we not doing it legally? No, I'm talking about just in general, the war on drugs, people getting locked up for marijuana, a joint. So we're, yeah. The, his, the historical, right? Plight of what Plight it of it, yeah. what it was. Since New York has been decriminalized, I think the statistic was crazy. 90% of their marijuana and the rest is, is vanished. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But how many of those people looked like us? Yeah. I mean, all of them, right? Yeah. So, you know, we have a, a a sense of responsibility to not be the only ones, but to make sure that we're pulling everyone else up and saying, hey, whatever you want to do within this space, let's find a way that you can be successful. You yeah. know, and it may take time because, like I said, we live in a society where convenience is key now. Yeah. Instant gratification. Instant gratification. But taking time to figure out what's going to be best is important. That's how I ended up with my farm. Yeah. It's because before I was go out there and put 50 acres of hemp on my family farm and it, and it doesn't work the way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-uh. So I got my farm to show them and I started small. Yeah. And each, sorry, each year it was just like bit by bit by bit by bit and they saw the progress. Hey, nephew. Okay. Yeah. And the return, because a lot of times, and I, I want to make this clear, um, we, we hear numbers and we're motivated because we just want to be able to say we got a lot of money. Right. But then we don't always take up the cost of what that process is. I heard y'all talking about this yesterday. Right. It's not for the faint of heart. No. No. You, 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 it's, some, it's some sweat that got to go into it. Yes. But I did hear a lot of things that intrigued me. Okay. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I'm sure I heard you guys say that adding hemp to your farmland can increase the, enrich the soil for yeah. other things to grow. Right. So you could grow a, a harvest of hemp, turn right around and plant corn. corn yes. Or other things. Yes, because hemp purifies the soil. So hemp does now, and it blows my mind, man, because for hemp to have so many solutions, right? Why is it demonized? Because um, I think it had a lot to do with the old movie Reefer Madness. If y'all aren't versed in that, look that up. Um, 
and you know the the cool thing the the cannabis was the cool thing in the blues and jazz clubs and i guess the, the it made people of other races want to you know hang out with the cool guys or whatever the case may be right yeah um that was the number one thing that really popped up when the movie reefer madness came and it kind of demonized black people as these big brutes that you know <laughs> yeah. throw people out of windows when they're when they're smoking or whatever the case may be um and when the 2018 farm bill was passed i jumped right in because i understood from the cannabis side of just going out to California and seeing how they were making money. And then I started to see it pop up in Michigan and all these different places. It was like, okay, it's coming to Tennessee. I don't know when it's coming though. But another thing my grandma used to always tell me is rather to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So I went and got a hemp license. Yeah. <laughs> it was $300. Yeah. Right. And I found a geneticist and we went to work. Yeah. And started our R&D because for me, it was like, hey, if they're going to give us an opportunity to eventually be in this space, whenever that opportunity is, I want to be ready, right? Yeah. So opportunity plus preparation. So you know what we need from you, man. Yeah. And I, I know I'm putting you on the spot. But we need a course. We need you to take all this information. You have all this wealth of knowledge. And for us... I know, you know, Google can send you on a, a plethora of, right. of rabbit holes. We need viable information that we can apply, that we can we can share, and that we can maximize. Because what we can't make more of is land. Right. Um, and we can clearly see that there is an attack on <laughs> us to gain all of the land that we have they want it. Right. But we got to work together. There's always power when we unify, right. when we become educated. We were also talking off camera earlier that ignorance is a blanket on our, our culture and our people. A lot of times we don't want to spend the time to educate ourselves. We just want somebody to give it to us. Right. But we're going to change that narrative. I'm speaking that we are going to unify. We're going to take these resources and even if we're at a stage where we can't see it fulfilled, we won't be jealous. We'll pass the torch and the tools to these young generations coming up like like your family did you. I still shout out your grandmother because she had enough insight to see and enough life experience to know that I may not be able to do it with my kids, but let me give this torch to my grandson mm -hmm who will be able to see it all through fruition. But here's the thing. My children will still benefit. And we talked a little bit about that. Y'all have it set up and, and you know, man, there's only so much you can talk in one podcast. But I really want you to come back at some point and talk about the business of how we secure generational wealth. Right. I think what your family does and has set up is something we all need to understand. One of the biggest things that tears black families uh, apart is when the matriarch or the patriarch passes, we get ugly with each other over finances, right? what was passed down. Right. Um, like 
it's not uncommon for us to say, uh, Auntie so and so and Uncle Junebug don't talk no more. Right. Because she felt like he got the house that she deserved and so forth and so forth. But the fact of how you guys have leveraged the property and assets to be something that remains within your family mm -hmm. is what we need in all of our families. Right. I don't care if it's $20,000. $20,000 in the right investment can become a million quickly. Right. We got to start seeing the bigger picture of what these things mean to the following generation. Right. And I love that you always speak about what's coming after you. I want to be able to do that with my family, my kids. I'm telling them that now. Your decision just to have fun. Life is not always about having fun. We right. just want to be out on an island. We think it's just all about that type of deal. But I grew up with kids of millionaires. They, they're taught entitlement. Right. This ain't your money yet. Right. If you ain't doing stuff that's good for the family, if you're not building yourself to be an asset, you're not getting nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that trust fund will dissolve right back into the very thing that you, the family needs. Right. And I think we got to get that. We got to have more conversations about that. Man, Um, I, man, I hate that we, time is coming short. But before, I want to give you a little platform to plug anything that you got going and that you, you want people to know. For sure, for sure. Um, first of all, I would like to shout out my family at Blue Organic, Art and Shana. They, they, look, I've had a blast here, okay? Yeah. Um, and I'm coming back, you know, because I love the fact that what they're doing, how I've, how they're educating and, and knocking down the stigmatism against cannabis and saying, no, CBD cannabis, this is, these are the benefits, yeah. and this is how it can help the community and create generational wealth opportunities for people of color who have been prosecuted mm. and persecuted by the plant, okay, or for the plant. Um, Al Harrington at Viola. Great mentor, great partner, um, has done great things in the community and is helping us identify how we can do the same thing. Um, and also just, you know, anyone that is trying to advance and propel themselves, you can follow us on Instagram, at uh, Hemp Campus. Um, email is on there. Any way that I can help you, I'm here. I'm here to be a vessel. You're not going to be, you're not burdening me with anything because it's going to take a community effort for us to get to where we need to be and strength is in numbers. I know it's cliche to say, but we really have to adopt that mindset and, and, and create our own uh, economic ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I'm just, thank you for the opportunity Lo, to speak and, you know, get our story out there. Hey man, I, I've been very impressed and very inspired myself. I, I'm going to say it again. Um, I need y'all to go out and support. We need a course from this brother. We need to oh, be able to go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are doing that. It's going to be called the Healthy Economic Momentum Push. Okay. And that's hemp for short. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And, and that'll be in collaboration um, with our, our good brothers at the Cleveland School of Cannabis and Al Harrington of the Harrington Institute. So be on the lookout for that. And I promise you it's going to be worth it. We're going to make sure that we're impacting and we're going to bring it down here to Mississippi and make sure that our people are getting what they truly need and the wool is not being pulled over our eyes. I love that, man. I love it because, as you know, like I, I constantly say through the podcast, I want this to be a learning podcast. It, it can be entertaining, but I also want you to leave better 
then you came. So if you're listening still at this point, I hope you're inspired. I hope you are finding yourself just on fire to go out and improve your economic situation. Like, man, there's so much opportunity in this world, man, that we often just let slip through our fingers. Mm -hmm. And I heard somebody say yesterday that you may not have the full 50,000, but you could be a part of a group that could come up with 50 right. and then grow from there. Right. Sometimes you just got to connect with people that are of like-minded attainment. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like, hey, man, this is what I have to give. And the same thing with my mentors. When I first got into the industry, man, I had nothing. I was a kid from Mississippi. I, they they were like, man, look, if you're willing to do this, this, and this, man, you can be in the room. Right. And because of that, being in the room, doing the work, doing the sweat equity, people saw I was serious about what I wanted to do. It's the same thing. My first, uh, one of my first business mentors was a, a, a Indian man by the name of Harry Patel. Mr. Harry came here. He had nothing in his pocket. He built himself up. Now he owns multiple Hilton hotels, and he's a million multimillionaire. Right. But Mr. Harry wouldn't give you a dime. He would give you knowledge. <laughs> That's right. And he would tell you, if you apply this right. um, to your life, you will. if I can see you work, I'll keep giving you information of knowing how to keep your finances fluid, flowing. You should always know how much you're worth every day right. and what your assets are worth. And that kind of mindset changes how we see the world. Right. It changes how we interact with people. It changes how we value people and the relationships that we have. A lot of us have developed these parasitic relationships yes. because I just know you got something that I want. I right. don't really want to give you nothing. I just want it for myself. And we got to change those mindsets. So, man, I, I, I thank you again for coming on. I want to shout out again my cousin Art, uh, Blue Organic, and their team over yeah. there because, you know, he had a great festival, man. And I Absolutely. learned so much. If you did not attend this year, y'all got to check out Blue Organic and the Canifest, man, that was on yesterday. Uh, it was beautiful, man. Very. And, uh, yeah, you coming back, you going to fool with us some more. Oh, you yes. a cousin now. We yeah, cousins now. Cousins. Yeah, man. Sure. So, until next time, man, listen. Uh, if you enjoyed this, shout out to the loyalty crew. I just want to tell y'all, man, how much I appreciate you. Your new Patreons, uh, man, I love y'all. I love how y'all are supporting. Um, you can always connect with me on my website, AloysiusBallard.com, and hit that Patreon tab. I'm trying to bring y'all more content like this. Man, matter of fact, we want to take the cameras, all these cameras and stuff. We want to go out to the farm. We want to... Y'all didn't even get all you could get from Gerald today, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's so many stories. There's so many amazing people that y'all need to hear from. And when you support me, when you support this platform, all of it goes into creating educational content like this, man. I work a nine to five, man. I got money. I'm good. I want to put it back into your lives. I want to sew back into you. So it's a 360 situation, man. So check that out. Um, and until next time, man, I'm going to get up with you. It's your boy, Lo. Tell him bye, man. Bye.